Well, I want to encourage you to turn this morning again to um, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 in your hearing. So Isaiah uh, chapter 9 and then verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And let us pray. Father, again, we come into thy blessed presence and, and thank you for worship. Thank you for the time together of just uniting our hearts and, and, and singing collectively to thee and being uh, affected by the glory of your, your son and the significance of his coming into this world. And I just, I thank you for the privilege we have to worship you and praise you and adore thee. I thank you for each one that you've been pleased to bring here this Lord's Day morning. And these moments, again, I would, I would ask for the help of your Holy Spirit and bringing forth Holy Scripture in, in a way that is certainly honoring to thee, in, in a way that is um, reflective of its holy intention. And uh, again, I would pray that you would cause it to lodge deeply in our souls that we would embrace it, that we would glory in it, that it would be enlightening to our hearts as we consider um, the, the purpose of your Son and his rule and his reign and the glory of his eternal kingdom. I just pray these things would be precious to our hearts as we think of all that you have been pleased to do for us in and through him. So we commit this time to thee also and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was debating uh, whether, debating with myself, nobody else was involved, um, whether to continue uh, the emphasis on, on Christmas or a Christmas theme this morning, something related to our Lord's birth, or whether to jump back into another subject, back into Hebrews. Um, the last two Lord's Days, we, we have focused specifically on something related to the birth of our Lord. Two weeks ago, um, we tried to focus on the reason for his birth in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. And I have found that to be a very helpful verse in just articulating the the purpose of the birth of Christ in very short compass. It just clarifies things rather quickly. And then last Lord's Day, our minds were occupied with this great prophetic reality from Isaiah chapter 9 and then verse 6 uh, about the birth of the person of Christ. And we, we noted this is a, an accurate and clear description of who the child is. He is a wonderful counselor in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the mighty God, which assures us that he can accomplish all of his aims and all of his purposes. He is the eternal father, which reveals that he exhibits the character of a father towards his people, especially compassion and mercy. Uh, he is the Prince of Peace to those who know him savingly, and we have the privilege of letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And the glory of these descriptions are, on the one hand, they're accurate, they're an accurate depiction of his character, and they also reveal what he becomes to us by means of union with the person of Christ. So verse 7 picks up on uh, this theme 
of the government resting on his shoulders. We see in, in verse 6, the government will rest on his shoulders. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of government or peace. And the, the concept of the government resting on his shoulders was a symbol, is a symbol of bearing rule. And that description of the child that we find in verse 6 makes it evident and clear that he is qualified to be the king who reigns on the throne of David forever and ever. So the great emphasis in verse 7 is the kingdom over which the prince of peace will rule. So this morning, I suppose uh, you could consider this kind of a, of a Christmas Eve meditation that will consist of four considerations related to the kingdom of the Messiah. So that's kind of the, the direction I want to to travel this morning and hope it will be edifying to your own heart and mind. So four considerations related to the kingdom over which the Prince of Peace will rule. First of all, I would have you notice that it's a perpetual, there's a perpetual progress of this kingdom, which is to say it will continue to advance. Picking up here, and the government will rest on his shoulders from verse 6, which we noted it's an accurate description of the child to be born in the previous verse. That underscores his qualification for administrating this kingdom as the mighty God it ensures the certain progress and advancement. And, and this, this term government stresses rule and dominion, uh, power. Sovereign can be sovereignty through legal administration. One commentator wrote, the empire of grace will ever expand. Another wrote, his kingdom will increase and occupy progressively all space until he rules over all. And Edward Young, who has written very helpfully on Isaiah, wrote, being established upon the double foundation of justice and righteousness, the, the Messiah's reign will be perpetual and progressive. So what stands out here as it relates to the, the uniqueness of this kingdom, to kind of get back to the main heading here, is the fact that it's an ever-increasing kingdom. It will never end. Uh, the text indicates there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. This aligns with the teaching of Daniel chapter 7 uh, and verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That's that's related to the Son of Man. And then you might recall the words of uh, the angel Gabriel to, Ab to, um, to Mary. Now in the sixth month, this is from Luke chapter 1, in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So this kingdom will increase and continue to advance as people are converted, and it has an eternal existence. So this is a, in contrast, of course, to all the kingdoms of this world. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote, We see that the mightiest governments of this world, as if they had been built on a slippery foundation, are unexpectedly overturned and suddenly fall. How fickle and changeable all the kingdoms under heaven are, we learn from history and daily examples. This government alone is unchangeable and eternal. Uh, Edward Young, uh, in his very helpful commentary, and, and he's combating the idea that this text would be used to apply to a, a, a literal future 1,000-year reign on this earth. He writes, the prosperity and increase are neither 
neither temporal nor local, for the kingdom is eternal. That interpretation would apply this prophecy, that, excuse me, that interpretation which would imply, apply this prophecy to a literal throne of David to be established in Jerusalem during the millennium must be rejected. The reign begins with the birth of the child who sits upon the throne of David and reigns eternally. To limit this reign to a period of 1,000 years is to neglect the words, there is no end. So this, this reality of this ongoing kingdom is a great encouragement to us, I think, in difficult times. Again, to quote Calvin, he says, We ought firmly to believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith. When we learn that amidst the mad outcry and violent attacks of enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God, so that though the whole world should oppose and resist it, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge its stability from the present appearance of things, but from the promise which assures us of its continuance and of its constant increase. So the idea is we live by faith. Um, and not by sight, while we look not to things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are unseen are eternal. So the uniqueness of this kingdom, which Jesus said, is not of this world. It's seen in the fact that it's ever-increasing, and it will never end. Ever-increasing, and it will never end. Also under this first heading, I would have you notice, this is a, a kingdom that is characterized by a kind of pervasive peace. Verse 7 says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. This kind of fits in with the description of our Lord in the previous verse as the, the prince of peace. One commentator wrote, peace and, and the government are mentioned together. This is striking, for most governments find their increase through war. Unlike other kingdoms, this one will grow through the means of peace, through the gracious working of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men, and through the preaching of the gospel. And Kyle and Dalich write, their commentators write, ever-extending dominion and endless peace will be brought in by the sublime and lofty king's son when he sits upon the throne of David, rules over David's kingdom, not by war, however, but by the spiritual weapons of peace. So this kingdom is marked by a, a unique and pervasive peace. In Romans 14, 7, the apostle Paul Rule for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The king in this kingdom is the prince of peace. Um, and when a person enters this kingdom for the very first time through faith in the person of Christ, they are at peace with God. Uh, Romans 5.1 says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the need for peace with God is our sin, which has separated us from God and makes us enemies by nature with God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Uh, reconciliation presupposes uh, enmity between two parties. Uh, when two people in our world are, uh, are reconciled with one another, often there's blame on both sides, and one person takes the initiative and says, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And the other person says, well, I, I shouldn't have done that. And they apologize to one another. But in, in this case, uh, the cause of separation is on our side. It's our sin. That's the reason for the alienation from the being of God. So our Lord's sacrificial death, what he accomplished on the cross, which was paying the penalty for our sin, receiving in his body the punishment which our sins have merited, that that re removes the cause of this alienation, what he accomplished on the cross. So when a person exercises faith in Christ, that accomplishment is applied to their 
account and they are at peace with God. But also there is the peace of God. There's peace with God, but there's the peace of God. We noted last week in Galatians chapter 5, this is the effect of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. So there is this sense of peace that surpasses understanding. So this kingdom, this kingdom of peace, it's not advanced by war or the sword or external tyranny or coercion or legislation. It's only advanced through conversion, through repentance, through faith, through being a new creation, having the heart of stone removed and replaced by the heart of flesh. So in the first place, there is a perpetual, ongoing progress of this kingdom. Second um, consideration, this overlaps a little bit, but I just wanted to touch on this. I would have you notice the historical continuity of the kingdom, the historical continuity of the kingdom. And, and what I'm emphasizing here is how closely the reign of Christ is associated with the reign of David. Notice in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So there's a very close association between the reign of David and the reign of the child, the reign of the Messiah. But, but David's reign was temporary and local, whereas we see in the progress of Revelation, the reign of the Messiah is eternal and, and people come from every tribe and tongue and nation. Edward Young says these blessings of the increase of the government and of peace are connected with the one who sits on the throne of David. And apart from that throne, they will not be found. He who sits upon this throne, therefore, is a legitimate descendant of David. It had earlier been promised that David's throne would endure forever, and hence the description of Messiah's reign is identified with David. This identification of the two is not merely due to an external resemblance or even to a typical relation, but to the fact that the Messiah's reign was really a continuation or restoration of David's kingdom. David was a temporary, temporal king, the Messiah, an eternal king. And we've already noted what the angel Gabriel said to uh, said in Luke chapter 1 uh, to Mary, he will be great, he will be called the son of the most high, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, to this we can add one other passage, Second Samuel chapter 7, this is in the context of um, the covenant that God made with David in the Old Testament, just a, a few verses here, verse 12 from Second Samuel 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, when he, when he commits uh, iniquity refers to the earthly kings that will follow David. But the language here makes it very clear, your throne will be established forever, indicates a greater fulfillment. In fact, verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5 and applied directly to the person of Christ. So I just want to have you notice here, there's a historical continuity between the reign of David and the eternal reign of the child or the eternal reign of the Messiah. Well, thirdly, I would have you consider two personal implications associated with this kingdom. Uh, the, the text speaks of the throne of David and over his kingdom. And we've already considered some features of this kingdom. It's increasing, it's eternal, it is spiritual. 
But drawing again from the, the fuller revelation, the New Testament, and, and keeping in mind that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, I, I want to just offer two personal implications. Number one, becoming a part of this kingdom involves a glorious transition from the realm of darkness to the realm of light. Becoming a part of this kingdom always involves a, a transition or a transfer from the realm of darkness to the realm of light, a glorious, profound, eternal, irreversible transition. Um, Colossians 1.13 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now note for this transition to happen, um, God has to make it happen. God has to work. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Uh, this transfer from one domain or realm to the other is presented here as a rescue. It's not as though somebody's just waiting on the corner to, to catch the bus. Um, to rescue is to free from harm or evil, and in some cases from imprisonment. And transferred is the idea of, of moving from one place or one sphere to another. This time of year, you might have uh, sent something from Enumclaw or Kent or Puyallup to the west coast, excuse me, to the east coast, to a city in the Midwest. But here the essential difference between the two realms is intensified by the imagery of darkness and light. If it's very dark, you cannot see what's in front of you. You can't see reality. If it's very light, you see clearly. And domain is the idea. It brings out the, the authority that exercises dominion. So if, if one is kidnapped, the rescuers must uh, successfully disarm and overpower an opposing force that is holding the person hostage. In the Bible, we learn that the evil force that the evil force that has exercised this domain is the devil and his minions. He's called the prince of the power of the air. John Davenant wrote, from the power of darkness, that is, from the power of the devil, of sin and hell, or in one word, from the state of corrupt nature, under which all those things are comprehended. We are said to be delivered from the power of darkness because we are delivered from the power of the devil, who is the prince of darkness and labors to more and more blind his subjects. John Eady wrote, the unregenerate state is described as the kingdom of darkness. It, it's one of spiritual gloom in its government, essence, pursuits, and subjects. In its administration, it's named the power of Satan. In itself, it is darkness. Its actions are works of darkness. Its population are children of disobedience and wrath. Well, as, as noted, the imagery of darkness indicates an inability to see reality as it truly is, to perceive it as it truly is. So John E.D. calls it ignorance, vice, and misery, the triple shades of this darkness held, of those held in, held in possession of them. One writes, it blinds humans from seeing the truth of their condition and how they might be saved from it. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it's as if you go to a play and the curtain is drawn, you can't see what's on the other side. You can't perceive what is on the other side. And people, they don't see their true condition by nature before God. They're, they're not aware of the level of misery and danger that they are in. Several weeks ago when it was raining incessantly, if you, 
If you drove from Enumclaw to Buckley and saw the White River, I guess you could call it a raging river for a while, you, you, you understand, you're aware, this is dangerous. You don't want to get too close to this. But men and women, they're, they're not aware of their danger, that they are liable to be swept away by sudden terrors at any particular point in time. So that the enemy exercises this power. That's, I want to say, the bad news. It is bad news. It is true. The good news is the gospel is greater power than that. Paul says it's the power of God unto salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full persuasion, just as you know what kind of man we prove to be among you for your sake. So, so entering this kingdom is a drastic, pronounced transition from the realm of darkness to light and glory and joy and hope and peace. Now, secondly, it, this is a second implication, it always involves profound ethical moral transformation. Transform, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Also, there's always deep, profound ethical and moral transformation. Um, a transformation that is commensurate with the character of the kingdom of light. It fits in with that. In John 3.19, it says, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That is, they conducted themselves in a way that, that was suitable to the realm within which they live and move and have their being. So Paul warns against this in Romans 13.12, The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds, the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Don't live or conduct yourselves in a way that's congenial to the kingdom of darkness. Now, it, just to be clear here, it must be said, we are not saved by good works. That is true. It is also equally true we are saved unto good works. Uh, becoming a new creation means there, there will be a desire in the soul to be pleasing to the person of Christ. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So no one is saved by works. Very next verse, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me just read you a few texts that I think make this case very clearly. First uh, Thessalonians 2.12, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk in a manner that is worthy of this kingdom to which you have been called. A little bit longer, Ephesians 5.3, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. They're not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. There is no moral and spiritual transformation. Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. One other text, maybe one or two more, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Just a straight shot. And then Paul says, 
do not be deceived, which suggests this is an area that people would tend to be deceived about. Somebody's just made a decision for Christ at some point in time, but there's no moral and spiritual transformation. Well, that's okay. At least they made a decision at a particular point in time. These scriptures make it clear that if one is a part of the kingdom of light, it will be evident by their fruits you shall know them. It is evident that the Spirit of God has done a work in their heart. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, that is, you were purified, you were sanctified, that is, you were set apart, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. So clearly, holy living is, is evident of having been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I might just add here kind of a, an implication, um, another implication of this would be uh, to live as a children of light. Uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Um, living as a child of light in this world, that does not always elicit the approbation of the world. Have you found that to be the case? The more that you're like Christ, that doesn't mean that you're going to receive the approval of the world, but actually the opposite. It can lead to persecution. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Uh, then he says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. The reason you are suffering is because of your involvement in the kingdom of God. So those are two implications, at least maybe three implications, of being a part of this kingdom. Well, in the fourth place, uh, the fourth consideration would be the assured triumph of this kingdom. The assured triumph of this kingdom. Now, verse 7 makes that makes that point in more than one way. Uh, a reference to the eternality of the kingdom would make that point um, to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Uh, Hebrews 1.8, with reference to the person of Christ, says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. Um, so it's, it's established on the unshakable foundation of justice and righteousness. He, su he supports it and sustains it. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Um, but this assurance of triumph, I'm really thinking of the force of these words. Right at the end of the verse, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this or bring this to pass. Yeah, the zeal is the idea of, of ardor. Uh, it's often um, the idea of jealousy. Um, one wrote, it, it, it's, um, it is sometimes used to signify not merely God's deep love for his people, but also his jealousy in their behalf and his jealousy for his own honor. God's zeal is manifested in his punishment of sin and displeasure against sinners as well as his furthering of his purpose in the bringing of blessing to his people. Now, some examples would be Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 13. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 23. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Deuteronomy 6.14, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. And one other text here, the zeal of God for his own glory is brought out, I think, very helpfully in Zephaniah chapter 1. Uh, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath in that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against this fortified, the fortified city and the high corner towers, and I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them, things normally that we think of as having value, on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the triumph of the kingdom is assured not only because of, God, of God's power, but because of this zeal for his character, his zeal for the kingdom. J. Alexander, I thought, had a helpful point. He wrote um, the astonishing effects produced by feeble means. He's talking about in the history of the church. The astonishing effects produced by feeble means in the promotion and preservation an extension of Christ's kingdom can only be explained upon the principle that the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishment. In other words, you look at the human beings that are involved in the advancing of the kingdom and you come to the conclusion there has to be some other power that is making this happen. Uh, others have pointed out that um, in the selection of the original 12 disciples, they don't really seem like the kind of people that are, are there to, to launch a worldwide movement. You know, there's, there's no great military leaders. There's, they're, not, they're not influential people. But it doesn't really matter because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish his purposes. And I think that's encouraging for you and I because it means the Lord uses flawed, imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. That's a great encouragement, is it not? Um, I'm presuming that you've had experiences where you witness to somebody and um, you, you said as much as you could remember at the time, and then you thought back on the conversation, and I didn't say anything about repentance, or I didn't say anything about the resurrection. And that's, that's, you know, that's okay, but we can still be encouraged because ultimately it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the, on the Lord of a host who is zealous to accomplish his purposes and advancing his, and advance his kingdom. So the perpetual progress of this kingdom will, will continue despite appearances to the contrary. Now shall we pray. Father, we thank you this morning for, um, for the time together. We thank you for the Lord of glory. We thank you for the kingdom over which he rules. We thank you that he is the Prince of Peace. We thank you that this is an everlasting, ever-increasing kingdom. We thank you that it will continue to advance. It will continue to increase. We thank you that the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. So we thank you for your son. We thank you for his obedience to thee. We thank you for his, his life in this world. And we thank you that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And even now, I pray that you might be pleased to take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our own hearts and souls for the glory of God and for the glory of Christ and for the advancing of the gospel and the encouragement of our own souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.